Well, take your Bible and turn to the Gospel of John, John chapter 14. Um, This morning, we're going to conclude our look at the 14th chapter of John's Gospel. And just by way of announcement and information, um, in the month of June, we're going to take a break from our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John. My family and I will be taking a, a couple of weeks of vacation in June. I'll be out those Sundays. And so as we dialogued about it several months ago, we determined to just take a break from the Gospel of John in June. And so in June, uh, Wade's going to be preaching a mini-series from the book of Titus. And so you want to make sure you're here for that. And that'll start next Sunday. And then on Father's Day, Joe Galloway is going to be preaching a sermon on leadership in the home, specifically for fathers. And that is one you definitely do not want to miss. And so that'll be coming up in the month of June. And then Lord willing, we will come back to John chapter 15, the first Sunday in July. Well, as I mentioned at the beginning of the service, this is Memorial Day weekend, and most of you are aware of that. Memorial Day is a holiday that has been set aside for us to remember and to reflect on those who have paid the ultimate sacrifice, who have died in wartime in service to our country. Well, as I was thinking about Memorial Day this past week and knowing this would be Memorial Day weekend, I decided to do a little bit of research and find out where did this come from? Where did this start? Who started it? What was the impulse to begin Memorial Day? Well, as a federal holiday, it didn't actually become a federal holiday until 1971, which is rather recent history within my lifetime. So yeah, it's recent history. Um, But actually the observance of a Memorial Day in the month of May goes back all the way to the end of the Civil War. Interestingly, it's experts and historians believe the first celebration of Memorial Day or a Memorial Day type of an observance was in Charleston, South Carolina. A Charleston plantation owner had an ownership of a racehorse track. And during the Civil War, this racehorse track and the, the facilities there were turned into a prison camp for Union soldiers. Well, towards the end of the war, the Union soldiers who were housed in those very rough conditions, some 257 Union soldiers died from exposure in that prison camp. Well, after the war was over, 28 black men of a, of a colored troop of the Union Army uh, gave those 257 soldiers a proper burial there in Charleston. They uh, created the cemetery, they circled it with whitewashed fencing, and a memorial ceremony happened because of that uh, cemetery and that event, and some 10,000, 10,000 newly freed slaves in Charleston had a processional through the city of Charleston all the way to that racetrack and to that cemetery where they sang hymns together, they prayed together. Uh, Different uh, African-American pastors gave eulogies and sermons, and they laid flowers on the graves of those 257 soldiers. Uh, That's likely the first observance of some type of Memorial Day in our country. Uh, By the late 1860s, many Americans were hosting tributes to those who died during the Civil War, and they would go to the graves of fallen soldiers, and they would decorate them. And so it was originally called Decoration Day, when they would go and decorate the graves of those who died in the Civil War. Uh, One particular Union general by the name of General John Logan 
called for a national nationwide day of remembrance on May 30th. And he picked May 30th because it was in the month of May, like some of the other observances. But on May 30th, there was no significant battle in the civil war that was known of. And so that was a day of peace, if you will. And so it was commemorated in the aftermath of World War One. Uh, this Memorial Day was was set aside to commemorate all who have fallen in wartime. And then as you move into World War II, in 1950, after World War II had concluded and the Cold War was ramping up, the U.S. Congress passed a resolution and President Truman signed it calling for Memorial Day to not only be a day when we remembered those who have given their lives in wartime, but he also called it to be a national day of prayer. Interestingly, I want you to see what the resolution that President Truman signed said. He made this proclamation uh, on May 11th, 1950. He says, since war is the world's most terrible scourge, we should do all in our power to prevent its recurrence. It was the hope of mankind that with the cessation of hostilities of World War II, the way would be open to founding a permanent peace. Instead, that war has left the world in a state of continued unrest. Accordingly, we feel the need of turning in humble suppliance to Almighty God for help and guidance. He continues, in recognition of this need, the Congress has fittingly provided in a joint resolution, which I approved on May 11, 1950, that Memorial Day, which has long been set aside for paying tribute to those who lost their lives in war, shall henceforth be dedicated also as a day for nationwide prayer for permanent peace. How many of you have prayed for permanent peace in the world on Memorial Day? Well, that, I haven't he- ever heard of that before, but it was a resolution that President Truman signed way back in 1950. Now, obviously, obviously we know with 2020 hindsight vision, we have not experienced anything close to permanent peace in our world. Just the opposite. Uh, the greatest thinkers, negotiators, diplomats, and delegates have expended countless hours trying to hammer out peace accords and peace treaties, pursuing peace between warring factions and nations. And yet the world is as hostile as it has ever been. And global tensions are as volatile as they have ever been. Well, this Memorial Day weekend, I want us to consider the true source of peace. How can we really experience peace in our lives and even peace in our world? Well, let's look at the prescription that Jesus gives for peace from the book of John chapter 14. This is the spirit-inspired word of God. Look at verse 27. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the father for the father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the father has commanded me. 
so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Now again, what President Truman and countless other ambassadors have sought peace in our time, that's a quote from Neville Chamberlain, Jesus has promised to give freely. The peace talks and the treaties have not brought us that kind of peace. In fact, they've largely been fruitless. Why? Because they're pursuing peace by the devices of men. Real lasting peace can only come through the accomplishment of Christ. And so we see this reference in our passage today. Now, when Jesus said to his disciples, peace, I leave with you, my peace, I give to you. I want you to remember that they were on the brink of going into their greatest storm as followers of Jesus. Jesus was about to lead them. He said, rise, let us go from here. He's about to lead them on the way from that upper room to the garden of Gethsemane. What would await them in the garden of Gethsemane? Well, Judas would arrive a little bit later with hundreds of soldiers flanked on either side with the leaders of the Jewish rulers there to arrest Jesus, to lead him to trial. This would be one of their greatest storms. And instead, Christ doesn't take us out of storms. Christ doesn't promise to keep us from trials and hardships. No, he promises to be with us in those trials and in those hardships. In fact, he will often lead us right into the middle of a trial, right into the middle of a storm and tribulation. Why? Because it increases our dependence upon him. You know, perhaps the most vivid illustration of that in Jesus's life with his disciples is the fact that he told the disciples to get in the boat and go on the other side of the sea, knowing they were headed right into a massive storm on the Sea of Galilee. This event is recorded in John's gospel. It's also recorded in Matthew and in Mark. And in Mark's gospel, he records that Jesus stepped up, rebuked the wind and the waves and said what? Peace, be still. It was the command of Jesus in the middle of the storm that brought peace. This was the same Jesus that was now leading his disciples into the garden of Gethsemane. This was the same Jesus that was about to be crucified. And he says to them, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. Why? Because I'm giving you my peace. And the peace I give you is not like the world gives. Now, to be sure, a peaceful state of mind is not something these disciples could drum up on their own. It was not something they could personally achieve through their own pursuits and their own devices. No, it had to be granted. It had to be bequeathed to them from Jesus. What did Jesus leave his disciples? Did he leave them power? No. Did he leave them prosperity? No. Did he leave them great positions in Judaism? No. In fact, none of that. What did he leave them? Peace, even in the middle of the storms. Now, as we think about Jesus's peace and particularly the way the Bible describes this peace, there's really two aspects of this peace I want you to see. Jesus's promise of peace. The first one is this. Jesus's promise of peace is that he gives peace with God. When Jesus promises peace to his disciples and he brings peace to us, it is peace 
with God. And this is our first and our greatest need as human beings to have peace with God. This is exactly what Paul referred to in Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Why, why would having, getting peace with God happen because we've been justified by faith? Well, justified means declared not guilty. Because the reason we don't have peace with God is because in our natural state, we are at enmity with God. We are hostile to God. We are at war with God. The only way for us to experience peace with God is for us to be set free from that trapped condition, for us to be delivered from the condition of sin. The divine justice that we deserve has been satisfied by Christ. In, In John chapter 20, Jesus will appear to his disciples again, and he will give the same Uh, words that he says here in John 14, look what he says. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Now watch this. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. See the point? You cannot have peace with God apart from the wounds of the savior. You cannot have peace with God apart from the fact that Christ has given his life. He was crucified and he was killed as a punishment for our sin. But Christ's peace is not merely the absence of hostility, the absence of the former conflict we used to have with God. Now we have peace with God. Here's the second aspect of peace that the Bible presents that we enjoy. Jesus gives us the peace of God. Not just peace with God, war is over, but the peace of God. What this entails is is that because of the Holy Spirit, because of Pentecost, which we're remembering today, the Holy Spirit has come into our lives and has given us the peace of God. Notice how Paul described this in Philippians 4, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That word guards there in Philippians 4, 7, it's a military term. It means to stand at a post, to stand sentinel over, to guard, to protect, to give watch. So friends, if you have difficulty and hardship in your heart, if your soul is at unrest, if your mind is tortured, you know what will guard those hearts and guard your mind? The very peace of God. This was the peace that Jesus was speaking over his disciples here in that upper room before he said, rise, let us go. And they went to the place of his arrest. Now, when we consider the peace that Christ brings to his disciples, when we celebrate and and revel in the peace that comes because of the gospel, there are some that could look at Christians and say, oh, you guys are just a bunch of escapists. You don't really think about the the real problems in the world. You kind of just stick your head in the sand. Well, that's the furthest thing from the truth. When you consider what these disciples are about to face, they're about to face untold difficulties and hardship. They're about to face some very real threats. In fact, in our passage this morning, there are two threats and two promises I want to highlight. Four points on your outline. Let's consider them together. The first is a threat. And that is this, we can face, we can have peace in the face 
of hostility. We can know peace with God and the peace of God, even in the face of hostility. Again, look at verse 27. He says, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. How does the world give peace? The world does offer some kind of peace, some type of tranquility. The Greek word for peace is irene, from which we get our English word irenic. If you look at a lake, you may say, oh, how irenic. You may not say that, but that's the word. That's what peace here means. How do we experience peace in this world? Well, the world offers peace through a healthy retirement account. The world offers peace through patrolling police officers in our neighborhood. The world offers peace through a peace, through our uh, opportunity to carry handguns concealed. Is that peace? The world offers peace through your bank account. The world offers peace through job security. The world offers peace through all these things, a a healthy economy, a booming dollar in the global economy. But all of those hundreds of ways the world can bring this kind of peace, they're circumstantial. If the circumstances change, the peace is gone. The circumstances give way, there goes the peace. All those things can be taken away. But even beyond that, when, when John uses the word world, when he quotes Jesus using the word world, often that word world is an antagonistic world, word. It's antagonistic. Even here in this chapter, uh, up in the beginning of this chapter, um, he says the world, Jesus did, cannot receive the spirit of truth world is incapable. In the next chapter, he will tell his disciples, if the world hates you, just know it hated me first. So often this word world is an antagonistic word. And you see each of these worldly authors of peace, they come with strings attached. So if in this world you're tagged as a troublemaker, If in this world, as hostilities increase against the gospel and against Christ's church, you're tagged as a non-compliant person. If your worldview is not shaped to the same mold and model of the society we live in, you'll begin losing things that bring peace. If you don't align with the societal positions of the company you work for, you'll lose your job. If a church does not align with the things that the world says, this is what you should do, otherwise you're going to lose your tax-exempt status, guess what? We'll lose our tax-exempt status. There's hostility that comes. These things that the world provides as so-called peace, they can be taken away when you become a troublemaker. This is exactly what Jesus told his disciples would in fact happen. Look at John 16, verse 33. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. We'll experience tribulation as followers of Christ, but the peace he offers is not tied to any circumstance. It's not tied to any kind of position or status in this failing world system. The peace that Jesus gives is completely otherworldly. 
Paul says this is the peace that surpasses understanding. And it's because there is no quantifiable reason or connection to circumstances that give us this peace, then we can be like the psalmist in Psalm 73 and proclaim these words, Who, whom have I in heaven but you? I can take everything else as long as I've got Jesus. And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. My bank account may fail. The political system may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And one of the greatest eras of so-called worldly peace is in this period of time during the Roman Empire known as Pax Romana, Roman peace. This concept of Pax Romana was really formed by Augustus Caesar. He lived about 100 years before uh, John wrote this gospel account. Pax Romana, uh, he actually commemorated Roman peace with an altar to peace. It's uh, in Rome, and it's called the Ara Pasis, or the Altar of Peace. And this marble monument to peace still stands today. Interestingly, the place where Caesar Augustus put this monument to peace was in a field dedicated to the mythological god of Rome known as Mars. Mars is the god of war. He put the altar to peace in the middle of the field of war, honoring war. What's the point? Well, the Roman historian Tacitus described it like this. Fittingly, he said, he makes a desolation and calls it peace. How different that is from the peace that Christ gives. You might want to write this down. It's not on your outline or in the, bullet, in the screen, but this is uh, such a profound truth. Jesus did not make peace for himself at the expense of others. Jesus made peace for others at the expense of himself. Jesus did not make peace for himself at the expense of others. Desolation and warfare, wiping out my enemies. No, just the opposite. Jesus made peace for others at the expense of himself. His peace altar is not a marble slab in the middle of a field of war. His altar of peace is a cross of wood where he gave his own life. When the world seeks peace, and we've seen it again and again, ultimately, it's impotent to actually achieve it. But Jesus dealt with the true cause of all war. He dealt with the true cause of all conflict, namely human sinfulness. Why is there war? Because of sin. Why is there conflict and death in times of war? Because of the greed and the pride of man. And Jesus came and he dealt with that sin. So the promise for his followers is that they can know, they can experience everlasting peace in the face of harsh hostility brought upon them even by the world in which they were living. Here's the second thing I want you to see, and this is really a promise. We can have peace from the Father's power. Peace from the Father's power. We've seen already as we've studied here 
in chapter 14 of John's gospel, one of the things that really were bringing the disciples great anxiety was the fact that Jesus kept telling them, I'm leaving. (laughs) I want you to know I'm going away. Where I'm going, you can't follow me. Where I'm headed, you can't come. I am leaving. And this really caused them great angst. He's going away. He told them multiple times. And what did they have? They had themselves a little pity party. And instead of being concerned with what this meant for Jesus, that he's going away, they were more concerned about what it meant for themselves. You see, Jesus going away meant he was going to the cross. I'm constantly amazed as I meditate sometimes on Hebrews 12 too. Hebrews 12 too, you've probably heard it, says this, for the joy that was set before him, before Jesus, he endured the cross. I want you to think at this very moment, on Thursday evening with his disciples, for the joy that was set before him, he set his face like flint to go to Calvary. What was the source of Jesus's joy? That for the joy that was set in front of him, he endured the excruciating pain of crucifixion. Well, no doubt part of that joy was uh, informed by the fact that these disciples who were so dismayed at the prospect of him leaving them, he knew he was going to save them and to save us. But do you know what else I think was joy set before Jesus? He knew after the cross, after Sunday, the resurrection, after 40 days on earth, presenting himself to the disciples in as many as 500 at one time, he knew he would be ascending to the father. Think about it. He'd lived his human life as God in human flesh, but not in any way close to experiencing the glory he had known and the glory he deserved for all of eternity past. So there's some joy in this. He's going back to the father. You see, because for all of eternity past, God, the father, God, the son, and God, the Holy spirit have enjoyed perfect intimacy, harmony, relationship, fellowship. Sometimes you'll hear people say, well, God created man because he was lonely. No, God was not lonely. The triune God had perfect fellowship and relationship. And there was joy for Jesus going to the cross because he knew he was returning to that same position and that same relationship with the father he had enjoyed before. In fact, in verse 28, notice what he said. He said, if you love me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the father for the father is greater than I. That word rejoiced is the verb form of the word joy. For joy set before him, he endured the cross. And he tells his disciples, you would have had joy. You would have rejoiced knowing that I'm going back to the Father. This should bring joy. This should bring joy. Now, Jesus does say here, the Father is greater than I. And this particular phrase is really taken out by those people who deny the deity of Jesus, the Godhood of Jesus, that he is equal with the father. Jesus says that over and over again, I and the father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the father, but they will take this one little phrase out of context. Yeah, he can't be God because he says, well, the father is greater than I. Well, what does this mean? I'll let uh, someone with a mind much sharper than me tell you what this means in part. Look at what John Calvin says about this phrase. 
He says, the Lord is not here drawing a comparison between the divinity of the Father and of himself, nor between his own human nature and the divine essence of the Father, but rather between his present state and the heavenly glory to which he was shortly to be received. In other words, in John's gospel, here we see Jesus is a human, and in the state of his humanness, he is less than the Father. He's confined to his human life, to his human body. But he was about to be received into that glory. But it's also clear, even in John's gospel, but that, that Jesus has what we might call a functional subordination to God the Father. And he rejoices to do the will of God the Father. Over and over again, we see Jesus saying, I do what the Father commands. My will is to do the Father's will. When he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, yet not my will, but your will be done. He has a functional subordination to the leadership of the Father, but they are together. They are one, the same in essence, equal in power and glory as we've seen last week. But here's a question. Why would Jesus' return to the Father in glory be a source of peace for these disciples? I said there's going to be peace from the Father's power. That's the point. Why would Jesus returning to the Father bring peace to these disciples and further bring peace to us? Well, we've seen already in chapter 13 and 14, we'll see over the months to come, chapter 15, 16, and 17, that Jesus repeats this promise. It's the promise of Pentecost. Pentecost Sunday was being promised in this passage and in these chapters. That unless Jesus went away, unless Jesus returned to the Father, they would not receive the Holy Spirit who would not just be with them like Jesus was with them, but would be inside them. This is the promise. This is what peace, uh, how peace comes to us. In fact, uh, look again at verse 16 and 17, a passage we studied last week, how Jesus describes this coming of the spirit. He says in verse 16, and I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth. Verse 23, Jesus answered him. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we, God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy spirit, we will come to him and make our home, our abode with him. See, because Jesus is returning to the father Mark the fact that the Father, one, has fully accepted the work of Jesus on the cross. That's why he was resurrected. But it also marks the sending of the Spirit on Pentecost Sunday. As we just read at the beginning of our service from Luke 24, we will be clothed, the King James Version says, endued with power from on high through the sending of the Spirit. And that brings peace. But there's another promise here in chapter 14 about the peace that comes from the power of the Father that I want to point out. Last week, I ended uh, the sermon on verse 26, but I didn't really expand or expound on verse 26 much. I want to expound on it just a bit here. Look at verse 26 in your Bible or on the screen. Jesus says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. And bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Now, the ultimate end of this promise that Jesus makes to the disciples here in the upper room, that the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he will 
teach you all things and he will bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. This is nothing less than the promise of this book right here. That's what Jesus is promising. The 11 believing disciples are in that upper room. And he says, here's my promise. When I go back to the father, the father will send the spirit and the spirit will teach you all things. What are the all things? What's been recorded for us in this book. This is the spirit inspired word of God. And here's the thing. If you'll remember, occasionally John has noted in, in this gospel account, we didn't know what Jesus was talking about when he said this, but later we, we understood. We didn't know what Jesus meant when he said, in three days, I'll tear down this, this temple and raise it back up again. What was Jesus talking about? They didn't have a clue until the spirit came and brought to the remembrance all that Christ had said. Until the spirit taught them all things, the spirit would come and help them. What this means, friends, is this. This book is the ultimate source for peace. Almost on a weekly basis, that is not an exaggeration. Someone will share with me some trial or hardship or concern or difficulty or prayer need, and I will pray with them. I'll hear that. And almost always, I'll make this prescription. Meditate on the word of God. Go read the scripture. Psalm 23, just this week, I prescribed Psalm 23 to someone. I said, here's what I want you to do. Go through Psalm 23 and find all the personal pronouns and emphasize them. And read over Psalm 23 again and again, meditating on that truth. What does that sound like? The Lord is my shepherd. I can hardly say that. I shall not want. He maketh me lie down in green pastures. You see how that brings peace? If you're afflicted emotionally, there is a supernatural thing that happens. When you as a child of God, who were regenerated from death to life by the Holy Spirit and indwelt by the same Holy Spirit, opens this book and reads the Holy Spirit-inspired words. You know what happens? Supernatural transformation. Supernatural transformation. Jesus says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. It's so much better that I'm going to go. Because when I leave, you're going to get the helper. He's going to teach you all things. He's going to bring to your remembrance all that I've told you. They wrote it down. We have it. Christian, you have the peace-giving word of God. What a gift. So we've considered one threat, the hostility of the world. We've considered the promise, the power of the Father through the Spirit, through his indwelling presence, through his inspired scripture. But here's another threat Jesus mentions. We can thirdly anticipate peace against the forces of evil. Is Satan working in our world today? Unless you've been asleep for the last 30 years, you, you know this. He has been working. He has always been working. And as Jesus is preparing to depart the upper room, his mind was focused not only on the unloving world, the hostile world in which he was about to send his disciples, but he was also focused on enemy number one. 
his greatest adversary, the devil. Indeed, while Jesus was delivering these very words to his disciples, Satan was busily working through whom? Judas. We saw several weeks ago, Satan entered Judas. At this very moment, he's working through Judas. That's not the only agent he's working through. Trust me, anyone who afflicted evil, abuse against the innocent son of God is an agent of Satan. That included Judas. He's working through the scheming Jewish leaders. He's working through Pontius Pilate, that coward. He's working through the temple soldiers who are even now arming themselves to come and arrest Jesus on the Mount of Olives. Thus, Jesus mentioned this threat right here in verse 30. He says, I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. Jesus could hear the footsteps of Satan. The ruler of this world is coming through the agency of Judas, the priests, and the soldiers. But Jesus says, he has no claim on me. What does that mean? He's got nothing on me. You ever said that before about something? Oh, they got nothing on me. (laughs) Jesus said, hey, disciples, the ruler of this world's coming. Guess what? He's got nothing on me. He's got nothing on me. See, long before the events of this night would transpire, long before any of the disciples were there, Satan had come in the form of a serpent to tempt our first parents in the garden. And they were persuaded by his influence and temptation. They were beguiled by his schemes. But how different was Jesus's response to the schemes of Satan in the the other garden, in the garden of Gethsemane? With Jesus as the new Adam, And now we as spirit-empowered humanity, here's a promise for you. He has no claim on you. He's got nothing on you. Why does this bring us peace? Notice what Hebrews says regarding being delivered from the slavery of sin and the spell of Satan. Hebrews 2.14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. He himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things. Later he'll say, tempted in every way, we are tempted yet without sin. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You see, instead of being conquered by Satan, by Instead of being conquered by the Satan-inspired actors like Judas Iscariot and the Sanhedrin and and the torturers and executioners, the innocent son of God conquered over them through his death. He broke the bond of slavery. He defeated the devil so that he could bring us to God. And you know what that brings? Peace. Peace. You know why else there's peace? Because of Romans 8, 1. Here's another one to meditate on whenever you're emotionally struggling. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
This is why we can make the same claim that Jesus made. He's got nothing on me. Not because of your goodness, but because of the goodness and the righteousness of Christ. It has been imputed to you. And every accusation of the evil one that comes against you, it's like Nerf bullets hitting a granite stone. Pointless. He's got nothing on you when the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to you. He has no claim on me. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Peace. Peace. And that leads right to the fourth truth I want us to consider. We can experience peace right now through faith in Jesus. These promises of peace that I've rehearsed with you this morning from Jesus's instruction here in the upper room, they're ultimately applied and activated because of our absolute trust, dependence, reliance, faith, and belief in Jesus. He says, and now I've told you in verse 29, before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. This is the theme of John's gospel. These things I've written to you so that you may believe. The sacrifice of Jesus, the blood that was shed, the atonement he made, the death he died, the resurrection he secured, all of those marvelous realities, how are they applied to our lives? Belief. You repent, turn from your sin, and believe, trust in Jesus. In fact, John, the author of this gospel, summarized the gospel response in chapter 3, following Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. John says, whoever believes, that's trust in, cling to, rely upon, depend. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not Obey the Son, shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that, he's, that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved and he will grant you peace with God. The enmity with God is done and the peace of God that surpasses understanding. So this chapter concludes with Jesus saying, rise, let us go from here. Jesus would continue his farewell address to his disciples. When we get to chapter 15, we'll see, I think they were likely walked by a vineyard there in Jerusalem. And Jesus used that living vineyard as a living illustration. I am the vine, you are the branches. They continue to walk and they eventually get to the garden of Gethsemane. And as they're leaving the upper room and making their way to the garden of Gethsemane. Again, all of the agents of the evil one are actively at work, preparing the arrest, preparing the fake trials. And he summoned his disciples to go with him to the place of the arrest. Rise, let us go from here. I'm mindful of what Jesus said in other places. Whoever would come after me must take up his cross daily and follow me. Guys, I'm, I'm headed to the cross. Let's go. Follow me. 
this is somewhat a menacing idea. But when we have the peace with God and the peace of God, we can walk in confidence. We have a spiritual enemy. He is real. He is prowling about like a roaring lion seeking to devour. We have peace with God. We have the peace of God. And he's got nothing on us. In fact, I love the way the Apostle Paul gives us instruction for the battle against the evil one. He actually lists off, metaphorically, pieces of military armor. We've been talking a lot about wartime and military and conflict. Paul talks about our spiritual conflict with Satan, and he gives us these items of weaponry. Look at Ephesians 6. He says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. And he goes on from there. But I'm stopping here because I think you see my point as I close. We have something we're walking on. Our shoes. And in this armor, they are shoes of the gospel peace, the gospel of peace. The same peace Jesus promised is the same peace that is attributed to us and bequeathed to us by his gift, my peace I give you. And is this peace that is under our feet every day. We walk daily in the gospel shoes of peace. peace. The Puritan pastor, preacher, and incredible author and Bible commentator, Matthew Henry, talked about this passage in his commentary on John. And he described this kind of peace that Jesus bequeathed to his followers. He used that language kind of like a last will and testament. Notice what Matthew Henry said. And with this, I'll close. When Christ was about to leave the world, he made his last will and testament. His soul he bequeathed to his father. His body he bequeathed to Joseph to be decently interred. His clothes fell to the soldiers. His mother he left to the care of John. But what should he leave to his poor disciples that had left all for him? Silver and gold he had none, but he left them what was infinitely better, his peace. And through the spirit of Jesus, he has bequeathed to you peace, real peace in our time. And on this Pentecost Sunday, as we remember and we even celebrate the sending of the Holy Spirit, we walk in thanksgiving and confidence because of the peace we so readily enjoy. And that leads to my last thought. Because we live on the other side of Pentecost, We have access to all the promises Christ pronounced. May we walk in the shoes of the gospel of peace by faith. Let's go to him in prayer.